Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're getting an intimate look at two small countries who found new ways to organize their societies, and they're both radically different from the rest of us. You probably thought the Netherlands had the world's most liberal drug policies, but it's actually Portugal. The Portuguese have been treating recreational drug use as a health issue rather than a criminal one for nearly 10 years now. We'll meet the former drug czar of Portugal who authored the law that abolished drug penalties and is still in place today. And from high in the Himalayas, we'll meet one of the few people authorized by his government to escort American tourists into the remote mountain kingdom of Bhutan. This tiny country is known for its unusual system of measuring progress. The rest of us use GDP, but the Bhutanese measure their success by a policy of gross national happiness. The creative approaches to life in Portugal and Bhutan. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. My travels have shown me that some countries will take radically different approaches to common problems and issues facing all of us. And we can learn something from their examples. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're looking at two such cases. A little later in the hour, we'll hear how Bhutan regulates tourism, controlling who can visit and where they can go in order to prevent large-scale tourism from overrunning their small Himalayan kingdom and its fledgling democracy. Let's start with a different issue in Europe. As a whole, Europeans tend to have relatively more liberal laws concerning recreational drugs than we do in the United States. If I asked you which country goes the furthest in decriminalizing drugs, you'd probably say the Netherlands. They tolerate the recreational use of soft drugs like marijuana with an official policy of tolerance. But Portugal goes even further. In 2001, they removed criminal penalties from possession and use of drugs. What does this mean for Portuguese society, for addicts, for recreational users, and how is it affecting Portugal nearly 10 years later? We've invited the former drug czar for Portugal to join us to explain what the law he wrote was intended to do and to find out how it's working. He's joined by one of our listeners, an American professor who focuses on drug policy and has studied European drug laws to find new ways to tackle our own country's approach to this tricky problem. It promises to be a genuine learning experience today on Travel with Rick Steves. Since 2001, Portugal has officially abolished all criminal penalties for the personal possession of drugs. Not just marijuana, but cocaine, heroin, and methamphetamines. This is a radical, out-of-the-box approach, and it's had quite interesting results. Today I'm joined by Clifford Garupa, who uh, teaches at Fresno City College in California, and he's the former head of its Alcohol and Drug Counseling Program, and by Professor Vitalino Canas, who's the former drug czar of Portugal, and today Professor Canas is the president of the European Affairs Committee of the Portuguese Parliament. Thank you both for being with us today. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. Now, first of all, Clifford Garupa, you're from California, you're Portuguese descent, and you uh, summer in Portugal. Yes, I do, Rick. Tell us a little bit about that. In uh, 2006, my wife and I found ourselves with a little extra money, and uh, we loved Portugal because I'd been to Portugal in 2005. That's when I made the acquaintance of Professor Conis. I'd been there to study drug policy there and in Spain and also in the Netherlands, And we fell in love with the country and decided that uh, we should try and see if we could perhaps uh, afford to buy a home there. And so we actually, uh, in 2007, purchased a small cottage uh, about 45 minutes northeast of uh, the third largest city in Portugal, which is Coimbra. And so every year for the past three or four years, including this year, we'll be going over for a little bit more than two months. We summer generally in Portugal. Now, you still work at Fresno City College in California? Yes. And then you have this wonderful opportunity to go to Portugal in the summers. And your interest is drug policy. Tell me a little bit about what you've studied about drug policy in Europe. Well, I uh, was fortunate enough to get a sabbatical leave in uh, the spring of 2005. I'd made uh, previous contact with Professor Conis, who was well-known in Portugal and Europe for his leadership with regards to reform of Portuguese drug laws. And I also had an acquaintance who uh, was a professor of economics at the new University of Lisbon. And so I made contact with both of them and uh, made arrangements to meet them in Lisbon and to scrutinize and examine and meet with them and talk with them, try to understand the changes and reforms that had been implemented 
in Portugal. And then, of course, I went over to Spain and spent some time in Spain uh, also investigating their, their drug laws and uh, policies. And I also went up uh, – the fact of the matter is I was told by many uh, drug experts that I met in uh, Europe that if you really want to see pragmatic drug policy and kind of the foundations of – from which a lot of other policies emanated, you really need to go to the Netherlands. And I think we've all heard of the drug policies in the Netherlands. So I subsequently traveled to the Netherlands and uh, investigated their drug policies also. Now, Portugal is ahead of the other countries in this sort of uh, progressive approach to treating drugs as a health problem instead of a criminal problem. Did I get it right? Since 2001, Portugal has abolished all criminal penalties for the personal possession of all drugs? Yes. Professor Canas, you designed yeah. this policy. Yeah, the policy started to be designed in the in 97, 98 by a commission with some experts, some politicians, some people which uh, looked at the situation and concluded that we should have a, a progressive approach towards drug policy. So when I started in 99 with this responsibility, uh, let me tell you that I was a member of the Portuguese government at that time. I was Secretary of State since 95. Uh, but at 99, the Prime Minister invited me to, to have this, uh, this file as well, this policy, this drugs policy. So I started in 99 and I decided to proceed with um, the policies that were designed by the Commission. So we started to prepare a law in 99. The law was submitted to the parliament in 2000. There was, of course, a big discussion because uh, from the political point of view, this was a uh, quite uh, divisive uh, law. So the left was in favor, the right parties uh, were against. So it was um, a big political debate. We had a big political debate in the parliament for some time, and then the law was finally approved towards the end of uh, 2000. And from 2001 onwards, we had enforcement of this new law with the creation of the dissuasion commission with the new approach towards the uh, drug addicts and drug consumers. Now, Professor Canas, this has been in, in effect now in Portugal for nearly 10 years, Originally, the right wing of your government was skeptical about this, and the left wing was uh, in favor of this. What is the result now, after one decade, and what is the thinking of the right wing in your government about treating drugs as a health problem instead of a criminal problem? Yeah, let, let me tell you that it was not just right wing parties, or, but also most of the society, because this is the kind of thing that people are afraid of changing. Uh, people think that when we change something, we take the risk of uh, getting things worse. So uh, there was in the society, in the Portuguese society, some fear on this, on this move. It was very difficult for us to explain why we were moving from um, an old approach, an approach that was coming from the 70s, to a new approach. Uh, but uh, things changed because after my government left uh, in 2002, we had elections and a new government. It was a right-wing government. We thought that the right-wing government would change, would suppress the new law, but uh, it didn't. And I think it didn't because it started uh, to realize that uh, all the drama that had been done with the law was not real, and uh, all the things, the very bad things that they were saying that would happen were not happening. So um, they didn't change. Then uh, we start in 2005 again with a socialist government, with a new government, uh, a left-wing government, my own government at this stage, and of course the government decided not to change anything. So. Now we have almost 10 years, this reform working, and I think the results are good. Of course, we didn't uh, solve the drug addiction problem. We still have drug consumption, of course. It's not increasing, it's uh, decreasing, but we still have it. So but, wait a minute, You've uh, excuse me, Professor Connors, you decriminalize drugs and consumption is decreasing? 
Now at this stage, it is decreasing, yes. Because this is the big fear in America, that is, if we treat drugs as a health problem rather than a criminal problem, consumption will go up. But you have a 10-year no, experience it didn't, now. In, not in Portugal. Um, I cannot tell about what would happen in, in the States or in other countries. But uh, what I can tell you is that in Portugal, um, uh, we didn't see any uh, increase of drug use or drug uh, abuse. Professor Connors, what about drug use among young people uh, when you have this kind of law? Well, the, um, the research we have been doing over the last few years show that drug use among uh, youngsters is decreasing. The biggest problem we have now is with ecstasy, with the so-called happy drugs mm-hmm. uh, here in Portugal. The big problem is with ecstasy uh, in the disco and nightlife and so on. But even even there, we don't feel that the use of drugs are increasing. So you have a policy really uh, interested in harm reduction, and by your estimate, use has gone down with this approach to drug policy. How does Portuguese drug use compare to other European countries? Well, um, there are some fields where we can compare, because drug uh, policy is not just decriminalization. We have also other fields, the fields of treatment, there are the fields of uh, risk prevention, and so on. Uh, There are other fields where other European countries are as much or more advanced than Portugal. When we look at the law, of course, we are a step ahead. Portugal is a step ahead of other countries. Uh, But when we look at other fields, other aspects of drug policies, there are other countries as progressive as Portugal, of course. Vitalino Canas teaches law at the University of Lisbon, and we've reached him at his office. He's also president of the European Affairs Committee of the Portuguese Parliament. When he was an official with the Council of Ministers in the Portuguese government, he authored the revamped drug law that removed criminal penalties for drug use in Portugal and instead redirected resources toward education and rehabilitation efforts. He's joined by Clifford Garupa, who teaches at Fresno City College and was recently head of its alcohol and drug counseling program. Clifford met Mr. Connas while he was researching the different drug policies of several European countries as chairman of Fresno County's Drug and Alcohol Advisory Board. There's more with our guests about Portugal's creative approach to drug abuse just ahead. Our phone number is 877-333-7425 and we invite your comments by email to radio at ricksteves.com. You're listening to Travel with Rick Steves. We'll be investigating a country with less than a million people, its own distinct language, and a radical notion of happiness in a bit. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're talking with the former drug czar of Portugal who wrote the country's revised drug law removing criminal penalties for drug use and possession. Vitalino Canas remains today an important member of parliament and teaches law at the University of Lisbon. We're also joined by Clifford Garupa, 
He's been active in investigating Portugal's pragmatic change in drug laws as part of his activities with Fresno County in California. He also teaches at Fresno City College. Uh, Clifford, when you think about uh, the relative use of drugs, which you've been studying in Europe, in Portugal, and in the United States, I read that proportionally more Americans have used cocaine than Portuguese have used marijuana. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, that, as far as I know, that's correct, Rick. So in other words, there's not a reservoir of people in Portugal just waiting to use marijuana if only it's legal. The, the use has not gone up, according to Professor Kana's experience. I'm, I'm curious, a lot of countries in Europe, one of the main reasons they're reluctant to have a more progressive drug policy is they don't want to become a drug mecca, like a lot of backpackers and tourists go to the Netherlands just to smoke pot. Has there been any experience in Portugal in the last 10 years of Portugal becoming uh, sort of a drug tourism destination? Uh, not to my knowledge, and of course that was one of the fears discussed prior to the implementation of their policy, and the fact of the matter is is that there have been declining drug use rates, and for all effects and purposes from the information and data that I've scrutinized over the years, that in fact has not occurred in Portugal. Professor let, let, me just confirm, let me just confirm that that was one of the main arguments of the, uh, the people against the law. They were saying that this kind of law would be a very uh, bad uh, indication or a bad, very bad precedent, and people would start to come uh, easily to Portugal just for drug use. That was, of course, completely mistaken. Because the experience in the Netherlands is there are border towns in the Netherlands that are just um, warehouses for Germans and French to come in and get their marijuana and go away, and it's a problem for the Dutch towns because they have uh, concern about drug tourism. Professor Kanas, um, how was the reaction of the United States to Portugal's policy when you were um, creating this 10 years ago? Well, we had a direct uh, reaction, of course. We are, let's say, a medium-sized country in Europe. I don't uh, believe the United States are very, very much worried about what we are doing uh, in this field. So we had not direct reaction. Of course, we had some uh, some questions, some people asking about what we were doing. I was invited by some people to explain and so on, but uh, not not really an official uh, reaction. Of course, the reaction we had was from uh, UNDC and people there in the United Nations organizations that uh, started to um, argue that uh, we are, were not following the rules, international uh, treaties rules and so on. But uh, we explained, and I think we were persuasive in explaining that we were not uh, going against the rules, international law rules. In other words, it's not a pro-drugs thing. It's a pragmatic harm reduction. No, it's not a pro-drugs thing because we are, we are not allowing people to use drugs. Right. We are just saying people that use, are using drugs that they must be treated and we are going to take care of them as uh, sick people. Sick not people. as uh, criminals, but as sick people. We still say that to use drugs is very bad, right. uh, and that uh, those who are using drugs take the risk of uh, being catched and being submitted to treatment. Okay, rather than submitted to prison. Yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is uh, Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Professor Vitalino Canas, who is the former drug czar of Portugal. And uh, 10 years ago, he wrote, and they established a law, essentially decriminalizing all drug use in Portugal, uh, deciding to treat it as a health problem and an education challenge rather than a criminal problem. And Clifford Garupa, who studies and works in drug and alcohol abuse and counseling at Fresno City College in California. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. William's on the line in Miami, Florida. William, thanks for your call. Yes, uh, hello to you and your guests. Do you have a comment or a question? Yes, uh First off, uh, are dealers in Portugal still uh, subject to criminal charges? Yeah, of course they are. Um, we are very tough on dealers in Portugal, so they are they are still subject to law penalties. They can be jailed and so on. And uh, do, do you have any estimates on how much money that uh, you that Portugal has saved uh, by decriminalizing, as far as uh, both in law enforcement, imprisonment, and uh, different things like that? Well, as far as I know, no. Uh, it's 
quite difficult to have that kind of figures and that kind of calculations, of course. I'm not aware of any figures that can show what kind of money we just uh, uh, spared to, uh, with this policy. Well, um, for your American guest, uh, if the America was to follow the same route, would, that, would not the, the savings be quite enormous? Uh, I would expect so, uh, considering the fact that research that's been done here in California alone through the California Department of Drug and Alcohol Program shows that for each person that goes through uh, a treatment program and completes it successfully, $7 in related uh, public costs are saved. The other thing I'd want to mention is that from my knowledge and my study of Portuguese drug policy, uh, one thing that Portugal did have prior to the implementation of the law in July of 2001 is, is they had a prison overcrowding problem, which has been substantially eliminated as a result of the implementation of this law. So these are all the many different factors that drive this kind of a pragmatic law, I would imagine. Yeah, I would imagine the savings uh, in both law enforcement and, and, and incarceration costs, and plus prosecuting these cases, would be the savings would be enormous in this day and age. If I may, uh, let me just tell you that our main concern was not money, of course, uh, because uh, we saved some money with law enforcement. We saved some money with not jailing uh, people, drug users. But we spent some money, or, or we start to spend some money uh, with treatment, uh, more money with treatment. So I would say that our main concern at that time was not saving money, was just um, having uh, the right policies. Uh, uh, and saving, no, but saving money does help. Well, in, in the United States right now, that's the reason there's a big discussion. It's uh, interesting that uh, the prohibition against alcohol was stopped, you could argue, because of the Great Depression, making money real tough, and people realized that the law was not only counterproductive and, and misguided, but also a very expensive uh, problem. And today, the United States is realizing that there are the, you know, just the compassion and the harm reduction aspects of it, which is motivating Portugal. But in the United States, we have this perfect storm now of concerns against the current war on drugs, and a big part of that equation, of course, is the financial realities. We're spending billions of dollars a year uh, prosecuting a war on drugs when Portugal is uh, arguing that you can uh, cut out the demand on your prison system and your in law enforcement system by treating it as a health problem uh, rather than a criminal problem. William, thanks for your call. Thank you very much. I would, I would say we should stress that in Portugal, nobody is saying... Um, that young people should have access to drugs. Nobody is saying that you should lighten up on anybody who's driving while intoxicated by anything. Professor Connors, just very briefly, what about driving while intoxicated and what about young people uh, access to drugs? Well, um, driving under intoxication can be a crime. So people can be jailed uh, if they can be also jailed if they are driving under the effect of alcohol. Uh, drug use is one thing. Driving under drug effects is another thing. We are also staff uh, on people that are catch driving uh, under the drugs, uh, drug effects. Um, access to, to drugs from young people. I think that there is, of course, uh, some access like in any other country. But I think also that uh, decriminalization was, uh, was effective in something uh, because it gave uh, police forces, policemen, uh, the possibility of drawing their attention directly to drug dealers and not drug consumers. So I think that at this stage, at this time, uh, what I believe is that police agents are more effective in fighting drug dealing because they, are not, they have not the duty of taking care of drug users they can also concentrate their activities in uh, getting the drug dealers. Clifford, it's so interesting when we travel that we meet people that are um, dealing with the same challenges we are here at home. How would you sum up what you've learned as an American in Europe with, a, with an ongoing interest on uh, drug abuse problems? Well, to begin with, uh, in Portugal and in Europe in general, uh, you know, for decades here in the United States, really since about 1968, which was the beginning of our modern drug war, uh, we've spent billions and billions of dollars on law enforcement because we've made this a criminal sort of uh, uh, issue. We historically have spent $2 uh, of tax money on law enforcement uh, and criminal justice 
processes with regards to drug use for every $1 we spent on education, prevention, and treatment. And what you find is, is Portugal, along with all the other harm reduction countries in Europe, uh, have generally, their expenditures are actually reversed. For instance, when Portugal did implement the law on July 1st of 2001, they more than doubled the amount of money that they spent on education, prevention, and treatment. So I would say that considering the United States is the largest consumer of illegal drugs in the world, we're 4% of world population and we consume 60% of all illegal drugs, that we could certainly uh, learn a valuable lesson from Europe because of the enormous amounts of money that we spent for little or no real tangible purpose. And Professor Canas, what, what can you summarize what Americans can learn from the Portuguese experiment in um, harm reduction when it comes to drug policy? America is a great nation. I think they, that uh, they have something to learn with others, but the others also uh, look at America with some hope and with some expectations. Uh, I would expect from the United States to have a more progressive uh, policy, I think that probably the United States will, will have some profit uh, with a um, different approach in drug policies. Professor Vitalina Canas, former Portugal drug czar, current president of the European Affairs Committee of the Portuguese Parliament, and professor at the University of Lisbon Law Faculty, thank you for joining us. And Clifford Garupa from Fresno City College in California, Thanks for joining us also, and, and thanks to both of you for shining a light on a very persistent and important problem in our society as well as uh, societies uh, abroad. Obrigado. I hope you can come here and uh, visit us. I'm on my way. <laughs> Clifford, thank you for joining us too. Thank you. Thank Bye-bye. You. See you. Bye now. Best thank wishes. you, Vitalino. From my hands and For a different example of how a small country shapes its society, let's turn now to Bhutan. Wedged between China and India, high in the Himalaya mountains, it's one of the world's most inaccessible countries. And it appears they'd like it to stay that way. We'll find out why and how they maintain their low profile from a man who leads groups of Westerners through his homeland with his own entrepreneurial tour company. Lote Rinchen holds an MA degree in Sustainable International Development from Brandeis University in Massachusetts. He and his brother run Bridge to Bhutan, which organizes personalized Bhutan journeys for solo travelers, families, and small groups. Lote Rinchen, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Now, Lote, did I get that right? There's less than a million people in Bhutan? Yes, there's just uh, 657,000 people in the country. And you have your own distinct language? Yes, uh, it's called Zongka. Zongka. Basically, it's a, a remote mountain kingdom, uh, nicknamed the Dragon Kingdom, up in the Himalayas, where the uh, the main religion is uh, mm-hmm. Buddhism. Is that right? Yes, uh, it's predominantly Buddhist country, and located between Tibet, China, up in the north, and then India on all three sides. Now, my image of Bhutan is very remote. I mean, I understand that in the 1960s. There was not early 1960s. There was not even a road into the country. You had to hike into the country. Exactly. How has that changed now? Well, we have come a long way. I mean, internet and television, as you know, uh, arrived in 1999. Mobile phones in 2003, and so you know it's changing rapidly. But still, uh, we've been very cautious with our development process, and so we're learning, you know, developing and learning from neighbors, and you know, picking up the good things from abroad. Now, aren't you smart? So you you were sort of um, stuck in the past a little bit because of your remote situation, and you can look out and see how other countries have done tourism in a positive way or tourism in a negative way, and now mm. you're trying to learn from that and, and do it better. You're involved in tourism in Bhutan. Uh, what is the vision for tourism in, in Bhutan? Just to give you the context, uh, uh, Bhutan's whole development policy is guided by this concept called gross national happiness, right? It's called GNH. Our country attempts to measure progress uh, not through GNH or GDP, but, uh, I mean, through gross national happiness. So because of that policy, we have the tourism policy called high-value, low-volume tourism policy, where there's a price mechanism that dictates the arrivals into the country, and it has to be a guided tour 
in the country. So not many tourists get to come to Bhutan, you know. Okay, so now this high value, low volume means, Mm -hmm. uh, what does that mean exactly? So our government uh, dictates all uh, tour operators to, you know, invite, I mean, have guests in the country by paying a minimum tariff per day, which begins from next year around $250 per person per night. It includes everything. Uh, The myth out there is right now uh, that people always say, oh, Bhutan is so expensive. It is like the visa alone, it's $200. But that's not true. Uh, it's all-inclusive package and a guided tour, uh, except the airfare. So for the 10-day tour, it's like from next year, it's going to be like 2500 Okay, and that would cover everything? Everything. And everything. The, that's because the government wants high-value, low-volume. So there's no cheap way to do Bhutan as far as you can't go backpacking or something. You take the tour, the government shows you your country in a way that respects mm-hmm. the traditions and the cultures and does not trample them. Exactly, yeah. For a small country like ours with very ancient tradition and culture, and you know, uh, we just can't afford to absorb just too many tourists. So right. that's the only way we can curtail the amount of the tourists coming in the country. So let me get this straight. If I want to go to Bhutan as an American tourist, I need to find a tour company. I buy mm-hmm. the tour, and then that company leads me through all the hoops. I get the visa because I cannot have a visa without a tour. I have exactly. to, and, and then everything is taken care of in that country. Yeah, a tourist cannot like show up in uh, my countries, uh, like you know, at the airport and say, "Oh, I want to visit Bhutan." Like a tour operator, uh, like mine uh, in the ground in Bhutan, mm-hmm. uh, arranges the visa, the, the air ticket, you know, because the, there's only one flight coming to Bhutan, you know, on one airline that's called Druk Air, which yeah. is our national airline. There's just two planes, uh, two Airbus jet, and. You can only bring in so many tourists a year, right? Yeah. So there are like flight, flights from Bangkok, Delhi, Calcutta, Nepal. So if you want to, if you want to just go in and hang out and uh, buy things and and uh, mm-hmm. experiment with the local traditions and everything, you need to go to Nepal or something like that. And I suppose your government has looked at all the the kind of hippie tourism in Nepal and decided, ah, we don't want that in our country. Yeah, that's true. It's like as much as we, I mean, I personally would like to have young people come to Bhutan and you know see the whole world, see the world from a whole new perspective. Yeah, you know. But again, uh, you know, we could, uh, I think, uh, balance it a bit because uh, I think you're you more know, you're more ruin. tender. You can a, a little exactly. tiny fragile country is quite mm. tender, and Nepal is exciting. I went there as a hippie, you know, and I mean, I had some of my finest moments at Pai and Chai. But um, I think Bhutan <laughs> just doesn't want that kind of freak street hippie travel. Eight seven seven three 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 Rick is our phone number as we continue with Lotte Rinchen, a tour organizer to his remote country of Bhutan. More with Lotte about what makes Bhutan radically different just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. My name is Parine Beretz-Etelko. I am from Hungary, and I'm going to tell you a tongue breaker. Az ipofai popnak fapipája van, mert az ipofai fapipa, papifapipa. In English, the priest from Ipafa has got a wooden pipe. Uh, and in Hungarian, once more, az ipofai popnak fapipája van, mert az ipofai fapipa, papifapipa. Happy travels, Etelko. Our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves is Lotte Rinchen, a tour organizer from Bhutan. He's just told us how Bhutan restricts open tourism in an effort to retain its culture and character. Let's see what else is different about Bhutan. Hey, we have Diane on the line in Santa Fe. Diane, thanks for your call. Thank you. Do you have a question for uh, Lotte? I do. Uh, I've been reading a lot about the concept of gross national happiness. And uh, I'm very interested uh, in how you think that might translate to, for instance, the United States. Um, I've gone on the website, I've read the message from your king, and uh, I see the metrics that are posted on Wikipedia as to how you measure it. 
But mm-hmm. uh, I wonder what you think uh, we might do to sort of approach that uh, that same uh, that same method. Uh, thank you, Diana. Uh, gross national happiness, uh, like you have read and seen, uh, it's a concept that's unique to Bhutan. It's uh, propounded by my king in the 1970s. Uh, that kind of has like four pillars and uh, nine nine domains and 72 indicators. So it's it's a like work in progress sort of because uh, uh, more and more practitioners and academicians and researchers and even politicians are uh, joining hands and trying to quantify happiness because it's a very tricky subject, isn't it? Yeah. And <laughs> so I should say it's a work in progress. And for a long time, Bhutan didn't want to, I mean, measure happiness. We said, yeah, just come to Bhutan and ask people, are you happy or not? You know, just one question, and that'll that's fine, right? But again, the whole world is obsessed with numbers, so. Reluctantly, in the last like few years, we started to gradually, you know, quantify happiness, and so now we have like seventy-two indicators, uh, and uh, every year there's a international like gross national happiness conference. You know, it was held in Bhutan, Nova Scotia, Canada, and Brazil and Thailand. So the essential, you know, foundations of gross national happiness is like uh, sustainable and equitable socio-economic development, conservation of the environment like preservation of uh, culture and promotion of good governance. And uh, like a country like Bhutan, the way we, what do you call, uh, embrace the concept is, example, the tourism policy. And uh, some examples like technical mountain climbing is not allowed in Bhutan. I mean, we have all these tall mountains never, never climbed. And for environmental and spiritual reasons, we, we don't allow technical climbing. But but wait a minute. What if it's good mm-hmm. for business? I mean, what if you could make a lot of money by letting people come in and climb your mountains? Yeah, exactly. So uh, we never consider an economic activity. Uh, we don't undertake it, even if there is a huge financial gain. You know, if if you know that it's going to cause some damage to the health, environment, and culture of the people. You better so be. Governments, you Bhutanese mm-hmm. people better be careful because that's uh, subversive information mm-hmm. to be spreading around. <laughs> you know, I don't you think it's an interesting thing because mm. you're not a very mm. rich country. What is the per capita yeah. income? I mean, if you measured uh, happiness with material well-being, mm-hmm. you're not doing very well. But uh, maybe yeah. you have different ways to measure it. So the gross national happiness essentially is like not to disregard the gross domestic product. You know, it's just to take hand in hand, you know, your spiritual well-being and material prosperity, you know, just to balance. But it, it's a fine line. But even though we are not a rich country, we are just... We're just trying to keep our economic temptations down, you know. Where will the next uh, conference be? I believe it is going to be in Bhutan, Thimpu. Aha. And when will but that be? But there's a, you know, Dan, there's an interesting, like, conference coming up in Vermont from June 1st to 3rd, I believe. It's like G- Gross National Happiness, GNH USA, like, conference. There's a gathering. In Vermont? In, Verm- in Vermont. Now, Lotte, if somebody wants to learn more about this concept, where, where would they go, the gross national happiness? Uh, oh, most of the literature on gross national happiness and how Bhutan is doing and where the next conference is and uh, information on this will be on the website, grossnationalhappiness.com. Interesting. What are the there's also a website called Gross International Happiness and gpiatlantic.org. So these are all useful, you know, there's tons of literature out there and the whole, like, there's a whole group of people that's trying to move this field forward. Like uh, Rick and Dan, this one, like, a fine example from our country, like, uh, we have in our constitution that specifically mentions that, you know, we have to have 60% forest cover for all times to come. You have to have what now? Say that again. 60% forest cover for all times to come. Oh, you'll never never violate the fact that you're country needs mm-hmm. to be more than half covered by forest. Exactly. Wow. This so is, these are some of the... You, you know, know like, this concept that, that less than a million people could actually promote a radical notion of happiness uh, in an international sense in itself is quite inspirational. It really is. Thank you so much. Thanks for your call, Diane. Mm-hmm. Thank, Thank you, Thank you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Lotte Rinchen. Lotte is, um, has grown up in Bhutan. He's uh, educated in Brandeis University in Massachusetts. Lotte has a company called Bridge to Bhutan. And if you want to learn more about Lotte's work, his website is bridgetobhutan.bt, which is for, the, for Bhutan, or bridgetobhutan.com, if that's easier for you. Lotte, when we think about Bhutan... Less than a million people. Uh, most of the income is is it agriculture? 
Yeah, Egregion Econo. Mm. It sounds, Lotte, like you have a very spiritual country. Explain the Buddhism in uh, Bhutan. Well, Buddhism uh, in uh, Bhutan is, uh, it, it, I mean, came from India, as you know, right? Just like uh, in Tibet. So it's similar to the Tibetan kind of Buddhism we have in Bhutan, but it's called like Tantric Buddhism. That's more popular kind of Buddhism where we, Tantra means like meditation. So you kind of seek or look for deeper meanings and seek like embrace compassion. However, uh, it's, uh, it's, we're not religious at all. Like it's just a spiritual country because of the fact that our religion, Buddhism in Bhutan, is very much influenced by the Buddhist saint, uh, Tibetan saint who came from Tibet in the 15th century called the Divine Madman. He's called Lama Dukpa Kinle. So he, he made the Buddhist religion very, very you know, open and uh, used humor, dance, poetry, music to you know, break people's taboo. So you'll see that in Bhutan, like, uh, you can pretty much do anything under the sky, eat anything, and you know. So yeah. it's very, very flexible. And there's a lot of meditation involved. And but the common people, we don't meditate though. It's the monks. Yeah, the religious leader for the Bhutanese uh, Buddhist is the divine madman. Yeah, he he made a big impact on our religion. And your country measures happiness in in a, in a blissful kind of non-materialistic way. This is a fascinating place to learn about. Now, do you have a separate your king? Sounds like he's quite a progressive and visionary mm-hmm. guy. Is yes. is your country um, technically secular? Do you have a constitutional separation of temple and state like we would have a separation of church and state? Oh, yes, yes, very much, very much. I'm sure you know we became the world's like newest democracy in 2008, in March. And what's interesting in Bhutan's case is like uh, people didn't want elections, like including myself, you know. I preferred like status quo. But the kings, uh, he went around the country and he... He met with people. He was convincing people that, you know, we we must have elections. You know, this is confusing. Uh, this is yeah. so interesting. So you're <laughs> you're a you're an elite in Bhutan. You got educated at a fancy university in the United States, and you did not want democracy. Explain why. Yeah, because uh, I was like, everything is going perfect, and you know, I mean, I mean, why we need to change? You know, but again, the king he he said like, there's no. There's no assurance that all the future monarchs will be the, like the previous monarchs. Okay. And, yeah, it's not fun when people ask for power, right? Right. Well, you have a king now, but he's, he's uh, sort of ruled by a constitution, and you have a parliament that does the important work of government. Is that right? Exactly. So now yeah. we have a and prime minister. And then I, I understand and, uh, that India really dominates your trade. Uh, what, 90% of your trade is with India? Exactly, yeah. Are, are you completely independent from in- India? Oh, yes, yes, we are totally independent. Too. I mean, but we enjoy very good neighborly relations with India. You don't need to print your own money. You just use Indian rupees. No, we have our own currency oh, you called do? Nultrum. Yes. Ah, okay. We have our own currency called Nultrum. And uh, uh, India, we, we have very good relations because uh, we export a lot of hydropower, clean energy to India. That brings almost half of our government's uh, revenue from hydropower. Okay, I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring Bhutan, a fascinating little kingdom high in the Himalayan mountains with less than a million people. And we're joined by Lote Rinshen. And Lote is a tour guide in Bhutan. He uh, runs a company called Bridge to Bhutan. And you can learn more about that at bridgetobhutan.com. Uh, our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Carol's on the line in Delray Beach, Florida. Carol, thanks for your call. Thank you. I happen to be going to Bhutan in the next couple of weeks. I've booked a tour. Uh, one of my most um, charming and most annoying, some of my most charming and annoying experiences in travel have been with street vendors. I wonder whether the government of Bhutan is doing anything to train or regulate people who wish to be selling things to travelers. That is an annoying thing in the developing world. Yeah, yes. Thank you, Carol. Yeah, I mean, I... Welcome you to Bhutan in, in advance. <laughs> Thank you. Is it your first time to Bhutan? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. But uh, interestingly, uh, unlike uh, other neighboring countries or other countries you, you must have traveled to, uh, in Bhutan, you, you will not see like street vendors like you see in co- other countries. Like India. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's totally a different, uh, you know, like a whole new world out there. You know, when you visit Bhutan. So, I mean, that street vendor thing will not be a concern to you at all. There will not be people on the streets trying to make me buy stuff? 
No, 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 not at all. You, I mean, you yeah. believe me. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to be in Bhutan when you are there, so uh, I'll, be, I'll be responsible for what I see now. <laughs> it, it sounds like a, um, mm. a fantasy land, really, and I guess it's possible because you have a kingdom. The people respect mm-hmm. the king, basically, and the king mm-hmm. is a good king, at least for right now, and you have sparse population, and you're isolated, mm-hmm. so you can get away with this. Mm-hmm. I understand that you have some controls that you can just put on the people. I, I read that on Tuesday it's the dry day where there's no alcohol. Is that true? Yeah, exactly. Now, yeah. Why, why is that, and, and, and what's, what's with that? Because uh, alcohol, it's in our traditional culture that a large number of Bhutanese drink alcohol. So uh, having one day alcohol-free, I think, is... Just to dry gonna, out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just to keep uh, people young, especially young folks, from you know, like taking up the drinking habit. And, ah, okay. You know, so now, who, where yeah. did that law come from? Did the king say there's too much boozing in this country? Let's have one dry day every week. Uh, well, I'm uh, I'm afraid I uh, I have no <laughs> idea about that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> hey, when you go to uh, Bhutan, we want to feel the the soul of your country, and and just in in to wrap up here, Lote, if mm-hmm. you want, if I'm going to Bhutan or Carol's going to Bhutan for our first time. What is the most important thing from your point of view to really appreciate the spirit and the soul of your people and your country? One thing you mean? Yeah, as a, as a visitor, what should we be sure to experience? I must say it's all like the three essentials you get in Bhutan, uh, the very happy and friendly people, uh, very, what do you call, pristine environment and very unique tradition, architecture and culture. So it's the the nature, the people, and the vivid traditional culture. Exactly. And very ancient, but yet, like, vibrant, you know. Because Buddhism elsewhere have died out, but in in Bhutan, Buddhism is still, like, part of way of life, and it's still there, you know. So it's one of the last uh, kingdoms in the world that has, like, Buddhism intact. And if you were going to take one painting or photograph that would would share the, the visual wonder of your country, what would that be for me? Oh, I must say it's the, I'm sure you have seen, it's the famous, uh, the popular like Tiger's Nest Monastery that's clinging on a cliff. Describe that to me. It's called the Tiger's Nest Monastery. So on all your trips to Bhutan, no matter whether you're in Bhutan for three days or a week or two weeks, you always visit this uh, quintessential like part of the trip, uh, the hike to the Tiger's Nest Monastery. Uh-huh. So it's a monastery that the history dates back to 7th century, and uh, it's a good, like, three to five hours walking, you know, uh, uh-huh. back and forth. And the monastery is located on a cliff. I'm so intrigued by this. I want to go to a country nestled high in the Himalayan mountains, a country that has made a law that requires forever and ever that they will be covered by a majority of their land covered by trees. I'll take a hike to the Tiger's Next Monastery, well, I'll study the Buddhist thinking and writing of a man named the Divine Madman, and I'll be surrounded by people who measure well-being by gross national happiness. It sounds like an interesting country to visit. Exactly. Lote, it's amazing to me that less than one million people speak your language. Can you give us some sort of a, a welcome or a greeting, please, uh, as you would in Bhutan? Kusu Zangpo, everybody. Jempa Lekso to Bhutan. Welcome to Bhutan. Kadinche. Thank you. Kadinche, Lote yeah. Rinchen, for an insight into your country, Bhutan. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Wherever you go, write us a haiku poem about the inspiration and surprises you found in your travels. Details about sending us a haiku to be read on the air are in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Here's what some other listeners are writing about their travels. Sometimes the journey itself can evoke material worth writing home about. Here's what some of our listeners have sent us about their travels. Barbara Boos of Des Moines, Iowa tells us of an uncomfortable night on a ship in the Mediterranean. A grease-bound ship, night. Deck floor bed, we huddled tight by our Samsonite. 
Julia Morgan of Round Rock, Texas, remembers her impression of traveling in India. Bobbing techno heads, bustling, dusty, delicious, Indian heaven. And Steve Swain from St. Louis sent us a set of haiku he composed on his handheld BlackBerry Wireless while trying to fly home one Thursday in September. He sent us a transcript of the text messages he sent out at the time, which he called a traveler's haiku. Sent Thursday, September 25th, 3.26 p.m. Subject, a traveler's haiku. Wait on the tarmac. The crew has nothing to say. Wait on the tarmac. Sent Thursday, September 25th, 4.35 p.m. Subject, re a traveler's haiku. My flight is canceled. A smoking oven is blamed. Long lines, many frowns. Sent Thursday, September 25th, 5 p.m. Subject, re a traveler's haiku. Finally rebooked. Now connecting through Dallas. A tight connection. Wait on the tarmac. The new flight is delayed. Wait on the tarmac. Sent Thursday, September 25th, 11.50 p.m. Subject, re a traveler's haiku. Arrive in Dallas. Run to catch my connection. Arrive home safely. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. You can send us your original travel haiku or a short essay about where you live and sign up to be notified of our next recording sessions for the show. It's in the radio department at ricksteves.com. We get production and technical help from Sarah McCormick, Andrew Wakeling, Robin Cronin, and Jonathan Lee. Thanks to Keith Sticklemeyer for reading today's haiku and to Valley Public Radio in Fresno and the Radio Foundation in Manhattan for their help. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. I'm the show's producer, Tim Tatton. Join us again next week for another edition of Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. On Rick's website, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To prepare for your next European experience, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.